In the spirit of that hymn, I should like to call your attention this morning to the words which are to be found in the first epistle of Peter, the first chapter and verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 in the first chapter of the first epistle of Peter. Wherein he greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now those of us who meet here regularly Sunday by Sunday will realize exactly why I'm calling your attention to these verses this morning. We are considering, and have been considering for a number of Sunday mornings, what may be described as spiritual depression. The case of Christian people who are unhappy, even perhaps miserable. And we've been at pains to consider and to analyze the various causes of that condition as they're outlined in the scriptures and as we know them in experience. And our consideration of the theme has not been determined by some morbid interest in ourselves and in our varied conditions, but rather by the desire to discover the New Testament answer, the New Testament treatment, antidote, cure for such a state. And constantly I have been reminding you, and I do so again this morning, that we should be concerned to be delivered from this condition if we have experienced it or are experiencing it, and not merely for our own sakes, though that is important, but still more, because we believe, as the Scripture teaches us, that the world finally will judge the Lord Jesus Christ and God himself by what it sees in us. We are the light of the world. We are like a city set upon a hill, and men, rightly in a sense, judge the Christian faith and the Christian gospel by what they see in us. Therefore, we see at once that this depressed condition of so many Christian people, probably more than any other single factor, accounts for the condition of the Christian church today and for the fact that the masses of the people are outside and in the world. Well, now, having considered many, many reasons, we come to the particular reason with which the Apostle deals in this particular section. There is no question at all that the only real object that Peter had in writing this letter at all was to deal with this very state. So he comes to his theme at once. He starts by reminding these people of certain things, and then he at once comes to his theme. He's been talking about the great salvation, Blessed be God the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to this glorious inheritance, wherein, he says, he greatly rejoice. Though, now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now, there, you see, is his description of these people. They greatly rejoice in this blessed hope. 
and yet they are in heaviness through manifold uh, temptations. Now again, as we have found so many times, this description of these people seems to be quite contradictory. He's describing people who at one and the same time are greatly rejoicing and yet are in heaviness. And yet, as we have seen again so often, there is nothing contradictory about this. You can, if you like, call it paradoxical, but it's not contradictory. Uh, indeed, uh, the whole case which is made out for the Christian in the New Testament seems always ever to include these two elements. At one and the same time, these Christian people to whom the Apostle writes are greatly rejoicing and are also in heaviness. Now, this is something, again, which uh, we must be very clear about before we proceed any further. There is a superficial view of Christianity which would regard this as quite impossible. The kind of Christian view or the view of the Christian life which uh, simply says that uh, all its problems have gone and now I am happy all the day, of course, can't accept this for a moment. It would say that any Christians who are in heaviness are perhaps doubtful as being Christian at all. Uh, there is that view which seems to think that the uh, Christian life, once one has arrived at a decision or once uh, one has been converted, uh, is one with uh, no troubles at all, no ripple on the surface of the sea of life. But everything is perfectly happy without any problems at all. Now the simple answer to that, of course, is that that is not New Testament Christianity. That's the kind of thing, of course, that the cults are always offering. That's the kind of thing psychology always offers. That's the mark of the spurious. Oh, there is nothing for which one should finally thank God so much as the honesty of the scriptures. They give us the simple truth about ourselves and our life in this world. And therefore I say we have to start by realizing that this is something that is almost postulated of the Christian. Now let's be clear about this. This word heaviness which the apostle uses here, it really means to be grieved. It means that they're troubled. It's not merely that they have to suffer certain things, but that the suffering of these things really does grieve them, that they're troubled about it, that they really are made unhappy by these things. So Peter describes these persons as uh, showing these two characteristics at one and the same time, the great rejoicing and yet the being grieved. Now, you will find that, I say, so commonly in the scriptures, take, for instance, a perfect example of it all. There's a series of paradoxes which the Apostle Paul has in describing himself in the second epistle to the Corinthians, the fourth chapter. He gives us quite a list of them. We are troubled on every side, he says, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, and so on. Statements which appear to be mutually exclusive at first, but which are not. They're just a part of the paradox of the Christian life. And this is the amazing thing about the Christian, that at one and the same time he really does experience these two things. Well, then, says someone, if that is so, where lies the problem? Well, the problem, of course, lies here, that we fail to maintain the balance and that we tend to allow this heaviness, this grieving, to overwhelm us, and rarely to get us down. 
Cast down, says the apostle, but not destroyed. Well, the danger is that it may destroy us, that it may, uh, as it were, keep us down. Not merely that we are temporarily upset by it, but that it really may become a prevailing mood and we can never get rid of it. And that as other people look at us, they're more conscious of the grieved, heavy condition than they are of this great rejoicing. In other words, we have to realize and to remember that uh, the Christian, according to the New Testament, is not unnatural. The Christian is not one who has become immune to what is happening round and about him. Now, I say that that's a great principle in the New Testament, because we need to emphasize it, uh, because there are certain Christian people, again I say, who really have got a notion and a conception of the Christian life which makes the Christian quite unnatural. For instance, grief and sorrow are something to which the Christian is still subject. And there is a sense in which I am prepared to argue that uh, the absence of a feeling of grief in a Christian is not a recommendation for the Christian faith. It's unnatural. It goes beyond the New Testament. It savors more of the stoical, or again I say, of the psychological. There is nothing which is more grand as you go through the scriptures as to see the saints of God yet subject to human feelings. They know grief and sorrow. They know what it is to feel lonely. They know what it is to be disappointed. All these things are here described. You'll see them in the life of the Apostle Paul perhaps more than anywhere else. He was subject to all these things and he doesn't conceal it. He says that when he went, when he arrived at Tras, he was troubled. Without were fightings, he says, within were fears. That's the apostle. He's still a very human person. Though he had such amazing faith, and though he had such exalted experiences in his communion with his blessed Lord. Very well then, I say, these things can be found at one and the same time. And the Christian must never regard himself as one who is unnatural in that sense. He has something that is that enables him to rise above all these things. Yes, but the glory of the Christian life is that you rise above them and yet feel them. It isn't an absence of feeling. And there, I say, is the most important dividing line. Well, now, let us, having laid down that postulate, go on to consider why it is that the Christian should thus be in heaviness, in this grieved condition. And the answer is, of course, these manifold temptations. Now, there's no doubt here that the better word would be trials. These people were like this because they were passing through manifold trials. Now, that's an interesting word, that word manifold, isn't it? It's obviously a favorite word with the, with the Apostle Peter because he uses it uh, later on uh, concerning the grace of God. It means, of course, many colors. It means that kind of variegated condition. Life like a dome of many-colored glass, says the poet. Well, it's something like that, you see. That uh, there is the dome with the different shades and colors of glass and the light of the sun comes through and we see these varied colors. Uh, that's the meaning of this word manifold. And the apostle says that these people are grieved, they're troubled and they're, they're in heaviness because they are experiencing these 
Manifold trials, they come in different ways, in different colors, in different shapes and forms. In a sense, there's no end at all to the variety. Well, what are these trials? What's he thinking about? Well, in this very epistle, he makes it quite clear as to what he has in mind. Many of these Christians were being persecuted. Dearly beloved, he says in the second chapter, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. The Christian, because he's a Christian, is subject to this kind of thing in this world. Because he's a new man, because he's born again. He's inevitably bound to be misunderstood. He's a stranger, he's a pilgrim. And he is like a stranger in a strange land. He's got a different type of life, he's got different ideas and customs, and the other people are looking on and they notice the difference and they don't like it. And they make it very plain to him that they dislike it. These people were subject to persecutions and trials that came in that way. We are given many accounts of these trials in the New Testament. I needn't keep you with that. But the saints of God have always had to meet this kind of thing. The Apostle Paul indeed goes so far in writing to Timothy as to use a phrase like this. Yea, he says, they that are godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution." Now, this is a law, according to the scripture. The more we approximate to the Lord Jesus Christ in our life and living, the more likely we are to get troubles in this world. Look at him. Who did no evil. No guile was found in his mouth. He spent his time in healing people, doing good, preaching. And yet look at the opposition, look at the trials that he had to endure. Why? Well, simply because he was what he was. The world, in its heart of hearts, hates the Christ, it hates the Christian. Because, of course, such holy living condemns it, and it doesn't like that. It's made to feel uncomfortable by it, and it's on the defensive, it reacts at once. Here it is, says the apostle, I know that you're experiencing that. They're speaking against you as evildoers even, simply because you're not doing what they're doing. He goes on in the fourth chapter to put it like this still more specifically. Uh, he says that the time past of your life may suffice to have wrought the will of the Gentiles uh, when he walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Listen, wherein they think it strange that he run not with them to the same excessive riot still, speaking evil of you. You see, these people, the world was annoyed with these people because they'd given up that sort of life and were living this Christian life. And at once they got into trouble. People who'd been very friendly towards them now began to look at them and didn't smile any longer at them, were obviously criticizing them, said things about them to others. That was the thing that was calling, causing this grieved condition. They were in heaviness because of this thing. And I say it is something that the Christian has had to endure throughout the centuries. This misunderstanding on the part of other people. And it becomes still more difficult when it happens to be someone who may be very near and dear to you or someone whom you've loved. When a Christian finds himself or herself perhaps the only Christian in a family, 
this kind of thing happens, and for a Christian not to be grieved by it means, I say again, that there's something radically wrong with him. One should be troubled by these things, and these people were being troubled. The Apostle Paul constantly was in this position. Notice how he tells us, Demas hath forsaken me. That wasn't a light thing to Paul. He was troubled by it. He was grieved by it. He had to stand on his trial absolutely alone. People whom he thought he could rely upon suddenly fell away from him. And there he stands alone. No man stood with me, he says. That's the kind of thing that grieves the Christian. Oh, you have but to read the lives of the saints, oh, almost at random, to find this very thing. Read your journals of John Wesley. You'll find he constantly was in this condition because of some misunderstanding or something like that. The latest example, perhaps on a big scale in this country, is to be found in the, in the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. When he started his famous downgrade movement, when he saw the apostasy that was coming in and the worldliness that was invading the churches, and he stood against it. Men whom he had regarded as friends, many of them he, whom he trained in his own college for nothing, suddenly fell away from him. And you have but to read his account of all this to see how he was hurt and grieved, how he was in heaviness, because men on whom he felt he could rely suddenly failed him. Well, I say you can read it almost at random. I was reading in the journals of George Whitfield only this very week, this very thing. Whitfield had had a season of exceptional nearness to Christ and he was rejoicing in it but he makes a note in his journal he says how strange that I should have had this after that terrible period of heaviness through which I had just passed and no doubt he says I shall be subject to that again he knew it, it was his experience it is I say the inevitable lot of the man of God in a world and in a life such as this because of sin well, very well then, here are these Christians with these manifold trials. Oh, let it be quite comprehensive. It means anything in this life and in this world that tends to trouble you and to get you down. Something that touches you in the most sensitive and delicate, delicate part of your being, in your heart, in your mind, in your sensibility. These are the things that tend to cast us down. Very well. What does the apostle do about it? What is his way of dealing with this kind of thing? Well, it's most interesting, and it's what you and I must do, my friends, if we are to maintain this twofold aspect of our Christian life. If we are to go on greatly rejoicing in spite of the things that grieve us, we must approach them and face them all, in the way that the apostle here instructs us. Well, what's the teaching? Well, the first thing is he lays down a great principle. And the great principle is that we must understand why these things happen to us. That's the first thing. Oh, how often do we need to say this to ourselves and to one another? I sometimes think the whole art of Christian living is the art of asking questions. The danger is, of course, we allow things to come upon us and we just drop to the ground without saying anything except that we say, alas and alack, and why do these things happen to me and why does God allow them? Now, that's, that's not the way. The thing to do is, says the apostle, is to discover, if you can, why these things are taking place, to understand why they happen to us. And here he uses the following terms. 
wherein he says he greatly rejoiced, though now for a season, then listen, if need be. Ah, that's the secret. What's he mean by this, if need be? Well, there is no doubt about the answer to that. It's, it's a conditional statement. You can translate it, if you like, like this. Though now for a season, if such proves needful. That's it. If such proves needful. Uh, it doesn't mean, it isn't merely a general statement to the effect, well, in a world like this, these things must happen. It isn't that. It's much stronger than that. He isn't saying, well, you're greatly rejoicing in this blessed hope, though, of course, in a world like this, you may have to endure certain things. That's all right. That's perfectly true. That's a truism. Uh, but the apostle uh, doesn't merely leave it at that. He's, he's got a positive statement here. He says, you are at the moment enduring this grief because it has proved needful to you that you should do so. Now then, there's our doctrine. There's a definite purpose in all this, says the apostle. This kind of thing doesn't happen accidentally. This uh, is not something that uh, just takes place because of the whole organization in life. That's a reason in a sense, but it isn't the main reason. These things happen, says the apostle, because they're good for us. Because they're a part of our discipline in this life and in this world. Because, let me put it quite plainly and bluntly, because God has appointed us to them. That's the Apostles' Doctrine, as it is the doctrine of the whole of the New Testament, as it certainly is the doctrine and the faith of the saints of the centuries. In other words, we must look at the Christian life like this. We are walking through this life and through this world under the eye of our Heavenly Father. It's the fundamental thing the Christian must grasp. I am in a peculiar relationship to God, which is not true of anybody who is not a Christian. And there is a very definite plan and purpose for the whole of my life. God is, has looked upon me, God has called me, God has adopted me into his family. What for? Well, that he may bring me to perfection. That's his object. He is fashioning me that I may be more and more conformable to the image of his dear Son. That is what he is doing. The Lord Jesus Christ is bringing many sons unto glory. So he says, Behold me and the children that thou hast given me. Now, if we don't start with that fundamental conception of ourselves as Christians, we are bound to go astray, and we are certain to misunderstand these things. The doctrine, therefore, of the scripture is that God at least permits these things to happen to us. I go further. God at times orders these things to happen to us. And that is, I say, for our good. He may do it sometimes in order, indeed, to chastise us. To chastise us for our slackness and for our failure. We were looking together last Sunday morning at the failure of the Christian to discipline himself. Peter there in the second epistle is exhorting Christians to discipline themselves, to add to their faith, to furnish out their faith, to fill out their faith. Not merely to be content with faith, but let it be a full-orbed, blooming faith. Well, we may pay no heed to that exhortation. 
We may persist in our slackness and in our indolence. Well, as I understand the New Testament doctrine, my friend, if you do that, don't be surprised if things begin to happen to you. Don't be surprised if God begins to chastise you. The argument of the twelfth of Hebrews is as strong as this, isn't it? That if you are children, well, then you're certain to be chastised. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. There is no more terrible state for a person to be in than that in which he's never experienced any chastisement. If you've known no chastisement, my friend, I should seriously doubt whether you've ever been a Christian at all. If you say to me that since you believed you've never had any troubles at all, I say, that's psychological, it's not spiritual. There is a realism about this Christianity, as I said at the beginning. And it goes so far as to teach that God, for our good, will bring us down. If we pay no heed to the exhortations and the appeals of the Scripture, God has his other method, whom he loveth, he chasteneth. He doesn't do that, says the author there, to those who are bastards, to those who are illegitimate, who don't really belong to him. But if they're his children, he's certainly going to do it. So we may be experiencing manifold trials as a part of our chastisement. I'm not saying it's invariable, you notice. I say it may be. But then sometimes God does this to us in order to prepare us for something. It's a rule of the scripture, a rule which is confirmed by and exemplified in again the long history of the church and her saints. That when God has a particularly great task for a man to perform, he generally does this to him first. I don't care which biography you pick up again. You take the life of any man who's been signally used by God. You'll generally find there's been a preliminary period of very severe testing and humbling and trial. Well, yes, of course, because God couldn't dare, would not dare, as it were, to use such a man unless he can be certain and sure of him. So a man may have to pass through this kind of experience because of some great task. Look at Joseph, for instance. Look at the things that happened to Joseph. Can you imagine a more dismal kind of life, an unhappier kind of life? Everybody against him, his own brothers jealous of him. They sell him, they get rid of him, and there he goes to Egypt, and there people turn against him. He's done nothing wrong, but because of the sin of others, he finds himself in prison, cast down. What's it all mean? Well, God is only preparing the men for that great position that he had in store for him. And it's the same with all of them. Look at the sufferings of a man like David. Oh, I say, you look at any one of them and you'll find that their lives, as it were, were surrounded by these trials and difficulties. Look at the Apostle Paul. Look at the lists he gives of his sufferings and his trials. It's always been like that. But you know, it seems clear also from the teaching of the Scripture and the lives of the saints that God sometimes prepares a man for a great trial in this way. What I mean is that he prepares him by giving him some lesser trials. Oh, it's there I see the love of God shining out so gloriously. There are certain great trials that come in life. And it would be a terrible thing sometimes for certain people suddenly to be plunged into the great trial from an undisturbed, even tenor of their ways. So God sometimes in his tenderness and in his love, he sends lesser trials to prepare them for the greater trials. If need be, 
if such proves needful. If God, looking upon us as our Father, sees that that is just what we need at that moment. So very well, we start, I say, by this great principle. That God sees and knows all. We think we know what's best for us and what is needful, but we don't. But God always does. And there as our Heavenly Father, he sees the need and he prescribes the appropriate trial. It's all designed for our good. That's the first principle. Let me hurry to the second, which is this. It is the precious character of faith. That, he says in the seventh verse, these things happen to you, these manifold trials, that in order that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. How important this is. The precious character of faith. And he brings that out with his comparison. Look at gold, says the apostle. Gold is precious, but it's not as precious as faith. And how does he establish that? Well, he says gold is something that ultimately is going to perish. Gold is finally only temporary. The erosion which takes place in nature is gradually destroying it and removing it. It can actually be destroyed by fire if the fire goes too far. There's nothing permanent about gold, though it's very wonderful and very precious. But faith is eternal. Gold perisheth, but faith doesn't perish. Faith is something that is everlasting and eternal in its very nature and in its very constitution. And the thing by which you live, says the apostle, and the thing that accounts for your being in the Christian life is that you are in this faith position and this faith condition. And you don't realize, says the apostle, what a marvelous and what a wonderful thing it is. You are rebirth, and all these things, they have become real and actual and experimental to you as the result of this faith. We walk by faith, we stand by faith, the whole of our life is a matter of faith. And you see, says the apostle, this is so precious in the sight of God, it's so marvelous, it's so wonderful, that God wants this to be absolutely pure. You purify your gold by means of fire. You get rid of the alloys. You get rid of the amalgam. You get rid of that which is not pure gold by putting your gold in the crucible and you put your flame under it and these other things are removed and the gold remains. And his argument is this, that if you do that with gold that perisheth, how much more so does it need to be done for faith? Because faith is this extraordinary principle which links a man to God. Faith is this thing that takes a man from hell and puts him in heaven. It's the difference between the world, this world, and the world to come. Faith is this mystic, marvelous, astounding thing that can bring a man who's dead in trespasses and sins alive as a new being and a new man in Christ Jesus. It's so precious. Well, it's so precious that God wants it absolutely perfect. That's his argument. So you're in these manifold temptations because of the character of faith. But let me put that in a slightly different form by putting it like this. Our faith, you see, needs to be perfected. 
There are degrees of faith, there are differences in the quality of faith. Faith is great and many-sided. And there is generally at the beginning a good deal of admixture in what we call our faith. There's a great deal of the flesh that we're not aware of. We begin to learn these things as we go on. And the process that God puts you through, says the apostle, is this testing by trials as by fire, as it were, in order that that which doesn't rarely belong to the essence of faith may fall off. And how does it work? Well, I think it works like this, and how obvious it is when you come to look at it. Take the trust element in faith. We think at first that our faith is perfect, that we can stand up against anything, then a trial comes and we find that we fall. Well, that's just an indication that the trust element in our faith needs to be developed. And God develops the trust element in our faith by trying us in this way. And the more we experience these things, the more we learn to trust God. We only trust him at first when he's smiling upon us and when the sun is shining in the heavens. But a day comes when the clouds have gathered and we can't see the face of God and the smile of God. And we say, does God love us any longer? Is this Christian life true? Ah, you see, your faith hadn't developed the element of trust. And God so deals with us in this life and in this world as to bring us to trust him in the very dark. When we can see no light at all, when all things seem against us to drive us to despair, we still know that one gate is open. One ear shall hear our prayer. That's the faith, that's the trust. Look at a man like Abram. God had so dealt with him that he hoped against hope. When there was no hope, he believed. He stood on the word of God. He trusted him absolutely when every appearance was to the contrary. Well, now, that needs to be developed in us. We don't start like that. But as we go through these experiences and find that behind a frowning providence he hides a father's face, the next time the trials come, we remain calm and collected and cool. We say, yes, I know. I don't see the sun, but I know it's there. I know that behind the clouds the face of God is looking upon me. And it's by means of these trials that that element of trust is developed. And likewise with the element of patience. Patience is a great constituent in faith. Patient endurance. The sheer capacity to go on and to keep on in spite of discouragement it's one of the greatest tests of the Christian and of his faith. We're all impatient at first. We start as children in the Christian life. And we want everything at once when we think it should come. And we want all of it together, but it doesn't come. And then we become impatient and we grumble and we complain. And we sulk like children. We're lacking in patience and in patient endurance. Oh, there's nothing that is more emphasized in these New Testament epistles than just that quality. Just to keep on whatever's happening. Whether men smile upon you or frown upon you, you just go on because you're pleasing God. Whether you get every blessing you've craved for and have pleaded for or not, you still go on. You say, God knows what's best for me. I'm still going on. I trust in God and I'll patiently endure even though he slay me. Yet will I trust him. 
patient endurance. Keep on. And it is as we are tried and tested by these things that all these other elements which go to make up faith become developed and are perfected. Or let me put it in my last general principle in this way. These trials are essential, says Peter, in order to show the genuineness of our faith. His phrase is that the trial of your faith, now trial there means the attestation of. You see, the picture he's got there is of a test being applied to anything, especially to precious metals. And then after they've been tested, the certificate is given, yes, it's 18 karat gold. That's it. That's what he means by the trial. He is really not interested in the process of trial as in the certificate of attestation. The trial of your faith, the genuineness of your faith, the approved character of your faith may be made manifest. That's why these things, he says, happen to you. And again, this is quite obvious, isn't it? It's the way that we endure trials that really certifies our faith. You remember our Lord in the parable of the sower? He depicts the seed falling amongst thorns. It sprang up at once and there seemed to be a marvelous harvest coming. But it didn't come. Why? Well, these other things, they choked the word and it died. He interprets that as meaning this. Trials and tribulations come and they crush the man. They choke the word and he dies. He never comes to full fruition. It seems so wonderful. You'd say, what a marvelous faith. Look at that man's life. But the trials proved that it was a spurious faith. It wasn't a real faith. It wasn't a genuine faith. There's nothing that so certifies the genuineness of a man's faith as his continuance, his patient endurance, his going on steadily in spite of everything. It's the teaching of our Lord. It's the teaching of the whole of the New Testament. Again, there is nothing that is so wonderful in the life of all the greatest saints as just that. How they stood like rocks. When others fell away round and about them, it's the story of the martyrs and the great confessors. They didn't compromise with truth or with anybody else. They just stood on what they knew to be God's truth, whatever the consequences, and they went on. And their faith shines out gloriously. These things are happening to you, says Peter, that the genuineness of your faith may be perfectly evident to all. Fair weather Christians are no recommendation. Those who start well but who don't continue, oh, they've never had the real thing. Many are called but few are chosen. What shows the difference between the appearance and the reality is the capacity to stand the test. All that glitters is not gold. Well, how do you prove it? Put it into the crucible and put the flame underneath. You'll know then the genuineness. That's the way to test it. Put on your acids. Put on all these things that really do test. And these things happen to us in order that the genuineness of our faith may be outstanding. Well, now then, there is his teaching. That's the most important thing of all. But let me just say this. He does give us a word for our encouragement. There's something here to console us. 
And we need it. Let me remind you of it. What, what is the consolation? What is the encouragement? Well, here it is. These things happen to us, I say, yes, but thank God they only happen for a season. Wherein he greatly rejoiced, though now for a season, if need be. Don't go away with the impression that I'm here to teach that that's the perpetual condition of the Christian. It isn't. These things come and go as God deems fit. We will never be tried and tested except it be for our good. It isn't permanent. And as we respond to the teaching, God will withdraw the trial. He doesn't keep us permanently like this. As Whitfield said in the quotation I gave you from his journal, these things seem to alternate, but God knows exactly how to send them and when to. And you can always be sure of this in the words of St. Paul. There hath no temptation or trial taken you but such as is common to men. But God is kind, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which we are able to bear, but will always also with the temptation provide a way to escape. He's your loving Father. He knows how much you can take, how much you can stand. He'll never send too much for you. He knows the right amount, and he'll give you the right amount. And when you've responded, he'll withdraw it. It's only for a season. Am I preaching, I wonder, at this moment to any downcast, heavy-laden Christian? Does all seem blackness and darkness? Are you not having the liberty you once had in prayer? Haven't you the feeling within you that you once had, my dear friend, don't be troubled. Go on. You're in the hands of your father. There may be a glorious period coming for you. He's got something in store for you. He may have some unusual blessing for you. He may have some great work for you. Don't be downcast, I say. It's only for a season, my dear friend. You're in the hands of your loving father. Go on, keep on. Say to him, yes, I'm content only to be in thy hands, only to do thy will. My will shall be. The second thing is this. As we are experiencing this heaviness, make yourself, remind yourself also of the things wherein he greatly rejoice. Now that's something you and I have got to do. You see, when these trials come, we tend to see nothing but the trials. I say, when the clouds have gathered, we tend to see nothing but clouds. Now then, do this. Just go back beyond the sixth verse, go back to the third. When you can see nothing at all, well, just open your scriptures and start reading this. Though you see nothing at the moment, say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that's always true, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Remind yourself of that. Oh yes, these things are happening. These trials are falling upon you thick and fast. They're coming in all directions. Don't sit down under your juniper tree and say, Alas, alack. Stand up rather and say, Well, these things are happening. But I know that God is God. I know that Christ came and died for me. I know that I've been born again. I know that I belong to God. And I know the inheritance is there. I can't see it this morning. I know it's there. 
And I know that God is keeping it, and no one will ever take it out of his mighty hands. Say that to yourself. Remind yourself of the things in which you greatly rejoice, though for the season, if need be, you are in manifold temptations. And then go on to the ultimate step, which is this. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, listen, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's it. The day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's coming. I don't know when, but I know it's coming and I know that I shall be there. And I know, therefore, that all that happens to me in this life and in this world has that as its ultimate objective. Let him deliver you, just as you are. Cry out unto him, and he will raise you up out of that horrible pit and mowery clay and set your feet upon a rock and establish your goings and accompany throughout the remainder of your life in this world. Be with you in the river of death and hold up your head above it all and beyond it all and then beyond will take you by the hand and will present you faultless before the presence of God in glory with exceeding joy. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.